This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is the Nicene Creed. We're working through a series uh, on the Nicene Creed, going through different affirmations that are a part of it. My guest is Michael Spiegel, who uh, teaches in the Systematic Theology Department here at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I have to take a big breath to say all that at one time. <laughs> and too much. Uh, that's exactly right. So, and our topic is the line in the Creed that says, "I believe in one holy Catholic." apostolic church, and I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the creed itself. Um, the Nicene Creed exists in in two forms. Uh, most people probably don't even realize that, right. so t- tell us a little bit about sure. that. Yeah, the Nicene Creed uh, proper comes from out of the Council of Nicaea 325, where the primary foe was Arianism, and some may remember Arius was... Uh, the guy from Alexandria who said Jesus was not eternal God like the Father, but a created being or the first created being. He had a beginning. And the Council of Nicaea uh, decisively rejected that. And then the controversy was how do we now articulate best what we mean uh, about the Son and the deity of the Son and how that distinguishes him from the Father? And they settled with this language on the Son is of the same essence as the Father, but he's a distinct person. So the strong emphasis at Nicaea was uh, the deity of the Son. Uh, out of that came this creed, this confession, based, probably based on an earlier baptismal confession of a mm-hmm. local church, possibly Jerusalem's, which was Trinitarian, that is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in structure, which all of the baptismal confessions were because you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, between the and, and they agreed to this this language um, between 325 at the Council of Nicaea and 381 at the next council, Constantinople. It was uh, decades of controversy, mm-hmm. uh, a resurgence of Arianism and fighting and trying to come up with better ways of understanding the language. And um, needless to say, when the dust settled, a second council was called in 381 to finally put this to rest. And out of that comes a little bit more robust, a fuller confession, a fuller creed that uh, all of them accepted, and that's called the, this is a mouthful, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Wow. So when we say, and that's I think that's 11 syllables, okay. when we say the Nicene Creed, generally what we mean is that longer form that is sort of an affirmation and clarification of Nicaea. So, so that's a long answer for a good short question, <laughs> but it gives you a little bit of the background on the on what we're talking about. And so we ended up with the short version, the Nicene yeah, Creed, much for easier. reasons it's that are obvious. It's much easier than saying Nicene-Constantinopolitan. <laughs> I've proposed we call it the Nikon, but uh, that sounds like some sort of sci-fi Convention, yeah, so, so just recited. Is that just, the line? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, well, let's let's take a look. Of course, the structure of the creed. Just to overview before we dive into this particular mm-hmm. part is is that there's a as you mentioned, there's a reference to the one God, the Father Almighty, 
There's the reference to the one Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then there's a lot of detail on the Son right. because it's he, very much focused on Christ's person and his work. That's his right. Redemptive work, yeah. Be, because that's where the real controversy the was. Yep. And then there's a confession of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the mention of the one Catholic Church baptism, and then it wraps up with a belief in the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Correct. So, so it, it's 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 a grand narrative of the of the creation redemption story. Pr- yeah. Pristine statement of mm-hmm. core orthodoxy in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, okay, well let's start off with with um, with this section that we're zeroing in on today. It says, "I believe in one holy Catholic." and apostolic church. So there are three key terms here, it seems to me, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So uh, let's go through those one at a time. And then there's a term that's missing that some people might normally uh, connect with some of these terms. So we'll come back and get that okay. one on the on the when we come back around the lap and after we've lapped on these terms. So holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Yeah. I mean, the, the first at the very beginning, it says the one church, and right. few, very few people have a problem with that, and it's right. going to draw us to uh, Ephesians, where Paul talks about one faith, one baptism, one uh, the holiness of the church, of course. Uh, you just look around, frankly, in the New Testament itself, and you see, well, what do we mean by holiness of the church? The church has always been fraught with doctrinal as well as practical and uh, problems. And so I think that that signals to us that what we are confessing about the holiness of the church uh, is an a theological ideal mm-hmm. that we are to be striving for on the one hand. It is also, if I can use the term eschatological, that is an ultimate, mm-hmm. this is what, what God is leading us for, the sanct- eventual perfect this sanctification of land. the church, right? Yeah. So the church is in the process of being made holy. Mm-hmm. In light of the fact, in light of the work that Christ has done in, in declaring it holy, setting us apart, but also ultimately we will be perfect and holy. This Ephesians chapter five, the the bride adorned. So I think that um, that kind of enables us and frees us to read all of these things: though the unity of the church, the oneness, the holiness of the church, the catholicity and the apostolicity. As in this age, these are going to be experienced imperfectly but doesn't relieve us from striving for holiness and unity and all of these things. So just want to set up the context of that there. I see these things as, as ideals to be strived for. The big problem, most people don't have a problem striving for the holiness of the church or the unity of the church, even though those two tend to work against each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. The problem sometimes I encounter is confessing that the church is Catholic, mm-hmm. because almost instantly Protestants and especially evangelicals will think, wait a second, are we calling the church, is this the Roman Catholic Church, right? right? right. Um, capital R, capital C, uh, and in fact some variations of the creed and certain uh, uh, articulations of it have replaced Catholic with Christian, one Christian church. Mm. Uh, and so I think we need to kind of back up and define what did Catholic mean in the fourth century. It doesn't mean precisely what we mean when we hear Catholic. Okay. So let's uh, – uh, well, before we do that, let me go back to holy just for a mm-hmm. second. And that is um, the idea of holiness is the idea of being set apart, of being sanctified, yeah. of being – of not being common, if mm-hmm. I can say it that way. Uh, and um, 
part of that is involved. I, I tell people when you think about the gospel, think about it from an Old Testament perspective for a second. Mm-hmm. So I've got an object that's unclean, okay? Yeah. If it's an unclean object, then uh, an unclean object couldn't go to the temple to worship right. God, an unclean person. So you did a washing or a sacrifice in order to be rendered clean. And the point wasn't just to be rendered clean. The point was now you were set apart, you were a cleansed vessel, washed, if you will, and that allowed you to have face-to-face contact with God in in the temple. In in the New Testament, that gets heightened because not only I have face-to-face contact with God in the context of the temple, but now the Spirit is able to indwell this Mm -hmm. cleansed vessel and set it apart. And the church is a community of such folk. Right. It is the it is the commu- it's why why they're called the communion of the saints. It's the community of the saints, those who are set apart unto. So so that's yeah. So the I would say uh, even something that's common is made holy, set apart for right. holy use. Yeah. So there's that that cleansing, but also that that appointing to uh, a holy priesthood of some sort. So I would say that's also wrapped up in this whole idea of holiness. But we are called also to a life that's supposed to reflect that holiness. Of course, we're not going to. Re- it perfectly. That's right. It doesn't change the fact that we have been set apart, and to kind of foreshadow where we're going to be going, uh, the right that sets you apart and makes you holy in that sense is is the right of baptism related right. to the Old Testament washings, which we'll get to. Right. Exactly. And so, and and exactly, we're setting the table, and you yeah. can see why these two things were set next Close to, each, to other. each other. They're both related to the church. That's and right. To the, and to what that means. And to the of activity that. of the of what the product of the gospel is, and the product of the gospel is in part. You know, we sometimes think the gospel is about you know getting saved yeah. or getting to heaven or whatever like that. No, but actually, there is a, and I mean this in the deep sense of the word. There is a communion that mm-hmm. results as a result of the gospel. That's right. There's a reconnecting with God that results as a result of this, and that the effect of that presence is a is a sanctifying effect. It's a holiness effect. It's an enabling effect that means that the, that God is now present and engaged with the person in a way that didn't exist previously to that exchange. Right. And and you know sometimes people will fly through these creeds and th- say, well, this is all about just belief. This is all just about faith. What about what about the practice? What right. about the pra- Well, it's it's really quite. It's wrapped up in that whole idea of holiness being set apart. That's under the article of the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and life giver. And right. Life giver was not just I'm imparting to you eternal life. It's I am working in you. Right. In this this new life of holiness, we're not left to ourselves. So so it's all that whole part is related to the, that, that's, the sanctified life. That's a good life. point to bring up because sometimes my I, I sometimes complain about these yeah, creeds. Right. Okay. And my complaint about these creeds is is that in the midst of confessing these truths, which certainly are there and eternal and have a direction and take us, there isn't that much explicitly said about how we live. Right. You know, it, and it's understandable they're dealing with controversies about what it is that people thought about these yeah. different areas on the one hand. But I do think there's a risk a little bit of, a, of creating a blind spot, and that is that in the midst of making this confession and saying, this is what I believe, it's like this, there's this whole other area of how I live, which these confessions are pushing towards, yeah. but don't develop in the way that right. the language does of the creeds themselves. It, so, pro- probably not surprisingly, the the how what a holy life looked like, a life of repentance looked like, was not 
generally in controversy mm -hmm. among e even you put Arius and Athanasius in the same room, they're going to disagree clearly on the who Christ is. But generally, they're not disagreeing on what the, the, the Christian way of life was. Right. So this is not an area of controversy. But also, it's important what you said earlier that, look, this these creeds are pointing us toward this communion, this community of the saints. Mm -hmm. um, and you take the creed out of that, then, of course, you're stuck with just a bunch of doctrines that you believe, when in fact, in the context, in the original context, they understood that this was a community of faith living uh, as Christ lived. And so they, they understood the connection. It's just sometimes in our modern world we see these as bullet point doctrines to believe. Well, uh, and again, because part of the point of the creed was to get people to confess mm -hmm. things that they that the community holds and particularly on controversial points. And so you it would be understandable that the attention would be there. Still, the I do think that the one of the one of the I don't know quite what the word is, one of the Tensions, I guess, in thinking creedally or in talking creedily is okay. I have this idea in my head, yeah. but if it's not transferring out, then then it it isn't taking you where the creed's actually right. designed to right. take you. Right. Yeah. Which we'll get to when we talk about baptism. Yeah. That's so implied there. Okay. So that's holy. I'm, yep. I, I, we're gonna beat them. <laughs> we're gonna beat these to a pulp. Okay. That's all right. That's okay. Good. Catholic. Now this is a word that most people actually probably have very little idea what it actually means. Mm. So let's start there. Yeah, Catholic is a, it, it is a Christian word. It's Christianese, mm -hmm. uh, and it first appears in Christian literature in the year 110, uh, roughly 110, with Ignatius of Antioch. And he uses the term to refer to the church thought of as a whole mm -hmm. as opposed to the church local. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have, I'm a member of a church. That's my local church with its local leadership and ministry. But I acknowledge that there we're not the only church in the world. It's connected. It's connected. Uh, it, I think of it in terms of this is my nuclear family, mm -hmm. and I have an extended family that reaches all the way from Australia to Alaska to Europe to mm -hmm. Africa, and so we're all part of one extended family. And I think if we think in those terms, it starts to make sense that you know in the New Testament we have this concept of the church is bigger than just the local church, mm -hmm. and it's connected by this common way of life, this common belief in Christ. Um, but what they lacked was a, a single term to describe that mm -hmm. uh, without causing confusion. And so Ignatius of Antioch, around 110, used this term Catholic, which means literally um, that the church thought of a, a, according to the whole. Mm -hmm. um, uh, thought of in its entirety globally. Universal. Yeah. yeah. The universal church. Yeah, yeah. Universal not in the great, yeah, 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 not yeah, in the yeah. invisible mystical right, sense, right. But, but thought of globally. Um, right. the the broad extent. And and as you progress through history, it's thought of in terms of, of the church not only globally but also throughout time. Mm -hmm. And so we're united in in some way through our confession and our way of life and our union with Christ to to all of the saints throughout history. So there's this sense of the um, the Catholicity or the wholeness of the church. So I think it, when we realize what the term means, what it originally meant, um, it, it relieves a lot of the, the stress. We should have no problem confessing and striving then for that that sense of wholeness. So, so if I were to paraphrase what we've said so far, mm -hmm. I believe in one set apart um, universal community. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and now we've got the word apostolic. Yeah. Yeah, apostolic relates to um, Paul's 
teaching in the New Testament where he says, look, the church is founded or rests or is uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the picture there is of building a temple. Building building. some, right, exactly. It's the foundation. You cannot relay the foundation. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're you're dealing at a time in the fourth century controversies where where many of these groups are are kind of building a new foundation. Mm -hmm. Or um, we would say, look, Clearly, apostolic implies that we are building our foundation on the apostolic teaching, which we find in the apostolic writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when they say apostolic, they are also including the the prophets, you know, mm-hmm. the the, um, the inspired scriptures. But also, they're saying, look, there's a an apostolic way of reading these texts as well. Mm-hmm. The Arians, the false teachers, were using the same Bible but coming to conclusions that really nobody had held before. Mm-hmm. They were novel, novel interpretations. And so there is a, a sense of um, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the Bible given to the church, and, and our doctrines and our practices need to conform to this apostolic foundation. So at the, as well as lifestyle, mm-hmm. there are things that the church has taught from the beginning all the way to today, this is right, this is wrong, and that's also part of that apostolic faith that's passed down. Now, the interesting thing is, is that if you think about this, um, you know, the the canon and the recognition of the canon is coming to its fullest expression, mm-hmm. its complete expression during the same time. Sure, mm-hmm. Athanasius is naming the. 27 books of the New Testament right in the midst of this period. I think it's 357, if I'm not mistaken, if I haven't uh, wrote an Easter letter, and and we get the list of the 27 books of the New Testament. And I tell people, you know, that that in the midst of this period that we're talking about, from the really from the events of Jesus until we get to this time when the New Testament is kind of identified. Um, that at different periods at different times, people had exposure to different parts of the New Testament. Yeah. And one of the reasons you get these creeds, I'm assuming, you know, I, uh, is you know most people – I don't know what the literacy rates are in the fourth century, but when we talk about the first century, the literacy rates are tending to be pretty small in terms of what it is, people who could actually read and write, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Most of what they processed, they processed orally. Mm-hmm. Um, Even if they could read and write, access to a you know, a library of writings is not not common at, at all. all. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's churches that have mm-hmm. these Bibles. It's not people Correct. walking. You know, the Bible church image of the person walking with on Sunday Bible morning with their the, Bible yeah. tightly tucked yeah. under their that that's not going on. Right. So so these creeds are designed. I would take it not only as statements of what the church believes, but also as teaching tools, mm-hmm. if I can say Absolutely, it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're interested in in the faith and and you're being drawn by the Spirit into this, um, they're going to introduce you to it not by throwing a a Gideon Bible at you and telling you to read the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell you, we believe in God, one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Pretty simple concept. But once you – that means you reject your many gods that you want. Mm-hmm. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And so it's a way of initiating them into what we believe mm-hmm. and walking them through that. In fact, then when they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they actually know what that means. Right. When they hear the word Father and Son and Spirit, they've been taught through these confessions, this baptismal confession or creed. And that's what creed means. Credo means I believe. Right, it's the right. first word of the of the of the um, 
of the confession. So you're exactly right. And so then let's say they do have access to right. older New Testament writings. Now they also have this background. They can read it the with way this it was meant to be with read, this with lens. this basic lens to yeah. understand that we don't read it this way, we don't read it that way, we read it apostolically. Now that's a question I haven't asked uh, or even th- thought to ask before, but that is um, – Which can uh, be dangerous. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> so, um, so, were these creeds memorized by people? I mean, what, what, what catechetical role did they yeah, have? Yeah. Um, Sometimes they were memorized. The, the records that we have, the earliest records of a baptismal initiation taking place, mm-hmm. is they would be asked and they would respond affirmatively. So kind of like when you're getting married. Right, do you right. take so-and-so, you don't repeat all that back, but yeah. um, they would say, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible? And they would say, I believe, uh-huh. credo, uh-huh. and then they would immerse them. Okay. And then they would ask them the next line, do you believe in Jesus Christ, and etc.? Huh. I believe, and they would immerse them a second time. Huh. There was that all the way th- into the medieval period, it was, uh, there was a threefold immersion oftentimes associated with each article of the uh, Each article the of the person of the confession yeah. of and God. And they called it one baptism, uh-huh. three immersions, and it was their way of uh, also through action confessing the triune nature. Of Interesting. It. Yeah. And so, and then this section that we're in now, I take it would would that wrap up the third part, or was that a uh, like yeah. an, an addendum? No, that, it was the third part. There was okay. usually something about under the article of the Holy Spirit. There was something about the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting, the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. and that language was sort of filled in and expanded upon uh, to some degree. Then. So 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 back. Back to apostolic now. So the term apostolic has to do with this this rootage, really, that Correct. we're talking yeah. about mm-hmm. that that comes out of the earliest generation. It's yep. trying to prevent um, any innovations from coming in later that right. don't have its roots in the first century um, uh, generation that had actually walked with Jesus or those who were right. associated with those who walked. Yeah, with and Jesus. I like I love that term because I use that image myself. The the apostolic relates to the roots. Uh-huh. Make sure you're plugged into that original right. teaching, and the the tree and the branches and the growth would would relate or to the idea of Catholicity. Mm-hmm. It's growing north, south, east, That's west, but it's all one tree. Now, you know, the Baptists may be over here, and the Methodists over here, and the Anglicans over here on the branches, uh-huh. but we all have the same apostolic root and therefore part of the same Catholic Church. And usually when people hear Catholic, they think Roman Catholic, but those two things uh, don't entirely always belong together. So let's let's talk about the Roman side of this. What 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 is what what makes a Catholic Church a Roman Catholic right. Church? Yeah, so we've all read uh, the New Testament, the Book of Acts, and you have a church in Rome that is planted, and Paul writes a letter to it, and it becomes a, a major hub for uh, missions then in the West. Um, more or less, you could draw a line through the center of Europe and everything to the west of that, including Gaul or France and, and the British Isles, Western North Africa. Um, what is the, the predominantly Latin-speaking West, um, was uh, a result of the planting of churches by the Church of Rome, principally. And so you, you see that they're, they're very active in planting these daughter churches, and there's a connection there. And as you move forward, um, the term Catholic, I said, was what refer- referred to the church as a whole, but sometimes they would refer to the Catholic Church at Alexandria, or the Catholic Church at Antioch, or the hmm. Catholic Church. That is, the church that belongs to the big family uh-huh. at, in the microcosms, right. this local church, part of the big church. And so 
the term Roman Catholic Church would simply mean the Catholic Church in Rome, hmm. that, that uh, chapter of that, of that global church. What happens, though, is because of this unity of the church and its mission and the, the daughter churches in the West and the Latin-speaking, that, that um, um, I guess very close network and association with the church in Rome, they began to develop their own distinct identity as the Western or the Catholic Church in the West. The Eastern Church was speaking Greek um, primarily, and so you have linguistic differences. You have some doctrinal differences that eventually develop. Um, but also, if you realize something, the, the Roman Church, if you think about the apostolic churches, churches actually founded by apostles. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of them in the East. Mm -hmm in the first century, more than dozens. Mm -hmm. In the West, it was Rome, it was maybe a couple others. Mm -hmm. And then from Rome, a lot of these others were daughter churches. And so as the East and the West begin to kind of drift apart politically, geographically, culturally, theologically, um, the West kind of consolidates around Rome and has this distinct Western Latin identity especially around the bishop of Rome, mm -hmm. who was at one time just the bishop of a local church, like our local pastor might mm -hmm. be, but he was the bishop of Rome, mm -hmm. the big church, yeah. eventually be called, being called the the, pop the original pop, pop, The original yeah. megachurch. The original <laughs> megachurch <laughs> yeah. with – it's a good analogy, yeah, yeah. conceiving itself as these are all our, our camp. Our daughter churches. And our daughter yeah. churches. Yeah. And so originally there's nothing insidious in it, but as – politics gets mixed in and power and some wealth, you can see where that kind of a system can turn into a, um, a, a sort of maybe dictatorship kind of idea where the, the pope has absolute control and authority. Um, as the East and the West split officially in 1054, they condemn each other over um, – now, adding a line, in fact, uh, one word to the to the Constantinopolitan Creed huh, uh, on, under the article of the Holy Spirit, uh, the West, the Roman Catholic Church added a word. They split, and so now the Western Roman Catholic Church under the Pope perceived itself as the remnant, the one true Church. Everybody else has apostatized, hmm. and so that's where you get this idea that the Roman Catholic Church is. The Catholic Church. Okay, so we're Long way story. down the now road. Now we're into the late medieval period. Yeah, yes. wow. Um, and and of course, most people when they think of Roman Catholicism think about um, the unity that exists around the the Pope, around mm -hmm. the Bishop of Rome. And the interesting thing about that is that is that those tugs between churches go goes back. Yeah. I, I know in the research that I did when I was doing work on the missing gospels issue that there was a discussion where Corinth pushed back against Rome when Rome attempted to inject itself into a, mm. a controversy, and Corinth wrote back and basically said, this is, this is not your business, this is our business. Yeah. And, and so this tension between was there – yeah, we're all equal, but is there one church that speaks for all right. of us yeah. is that, something that lingered for a correct. long time. That, and that goes back – start, you start to hear – of hints of that and suggestions of that already in the second century. That's right. That's uh, what I'm alluding Roman to. Church is, exactly is uh, asserting some things and and then backing off, uh -huh. push back and right. backing off. But but also you have to understand Rome was the capital of the empire right for some time until right. Constantinople was founded and then um, it was a very very large church even in the first century and mm -hmm. a very wealthy church with a lot of power, a lot of influence, and so it had. A, 
it could throw its weight around, and it tried to, mm-hmm. which is which is human nature. Mm-hmm. We do it today. Big churches, right, tend to throw their weight around a bit more, and right. and kind of want to want to speak for the evangelical community, right. Oftentimes, right, whether you want them to speak for you or not. <laughs> That's right, right. exactly. So, yeah, so, so it's understandable. I don't want to yeah. say it. it's more of a slow, gradual, natural, understandable progression, right, than something insidious that was. Yeah, necessarily- I, I was mentioned to you in the in the break that we had that that my son at St. John's uh, took a course on on the history of the church, and the book that they had him read was by Hans Kung, and it was mm-hmm. about the the history of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. He's very Purposeful, and he, and his history is built around the emergence of the of the dominant episcopate, if I can say yeah. it that way, right. and, and the idea of the pope. And his premise was is that you really don't get the Roman Catholic Church in in the sense that we tend to think about it today until you're in the sixth, seventh century when you get the pope. Uh, uh, the the popal figure, I guess, Leo the Great and company, who who really begin to coalesce yeah. some of this power. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting, the, the ecumenical councils that that, one, that we're talking about here, Nicaea, Constantinople, and then several others, Ephesus, Colchidon, uh, you know, the, the Western Church, uh, the popes never showed up for that. Right. Bishops from all over would yeah. show up and the pope would send some messengers because they would have their own meeting, settle their own thing, write up something and send it on, and that would represent uh-huh. as a block the whole Western right. Church. So that does something for the perception of the unity and the – and then they, later on they could say, look, we've, we've always been the same. We've uh-huh. always held true to orthodoxy. And, and so there's, a, it's, there's, there's some interesting social – Political so these phenomenon. creeds that we're talking about, which have managed not only to exist in the history and history, obviously the Roman Catholic Church, but also have managed to be a part of the Protestant tradition, mm-hmm. to some degree predate some uh, what we're talking right. about here when we say Roman yes. Catholic. Yeah. So when the creed says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic Church, you have to understand this is bishops and representatives from churches as far east as Assyria. To Rome, to at, at North Africa, this is not just the Roman Catholic Church right. asserting this. This is all the church. And everywhere. when you think about where these councils were held, I mean, Nicaea, uh, yep. Constantinople, uh, I think there's a hip, hip Ephesus, Ephesus. All of these are in Asia Hippo, Minor. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and and, the and, ones, and they anyway. and they run. You know, they run the gamut in terms of locations, uh, and yep. so and local and there's local councils going on as well with more local authority, like Hippo and mm-hmm. Carthage and Rome and right. Things. So yeah, yeah. So it's it it is a it it is a Catholic exercise in the yeah. in the original sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I think I think we've gone through that part of the confession. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. It's kind of fun to go through these and think through what's really in them. The second part is, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Now, this is interesting for a whole series of reasons, Um, uh, because most people, when they think baptism and they think Bible, Mm -hmm. uh, they might think of John the Baptist's baptism. uh, and. We're not talking about that, are we? We not at that not in the fourth century. We're not uh-huh. right. Is we're talking about the uh, a right that someone undertakes to to um, to publicly declare their confession 
of the Trinitarian God. Mm-hmm. And they're initiate. so it's doing several things. It's initiating them into the church, what we talked about earlier mm-hmm. in the last segment. Uh, this that was the washing mm-hmm. that t- took the common vessel or even the unclean vessel right. and made it holy for holy purposes. Right. And you're now part of the community. This is why it's under that article talking about the church. Right. Yeah. And the picture is of a and this is worth mentioning, and the pictures of a of a permanent washing. It's Correct. not it's not a, a one time washing. That's right. Like it, Jesus said, look, you just need your feet washed. You're yeah. you've been cleansed. Yeah, right. right that right. image is a one time washing. So so this which wa- aligns with our theology that there's a one time conversion. Exactly. Exactly. Not a over and over constant. So that's why it's one, one. baptism. Yeah. Okay. So the, the one, and there is a strong emphasis at this time in the fourth century on the one. We get hung up on the, the baptism or forgiveness of sins. Really, their emphasis, if they were to read it out loud, they'd be saying one baptism. Mm-hmm. Because to rebaptize someone was to say there was something wrong with the first baptism, mm-hmm. and that usually was reserved for cults or sects or people who broke away from the true church. Heretics mm-hmm. would rebaptize, hmm. and uh, that was saying something that you rejected the Orthodox faith in some way. So there was a real strong, and to this day, a strong reluctance in these traditional liturgical churches to rebaptize. Now I'm a New Testament guy, so yep. I can't leave the baptism of John completely alone sure. here. But it, it really was a different. It, it's a different exercise. It is a. It, its background is gets much discussed, but um, there were washings in Judaism. There were, at least at some point around the time of John, there was the issue of proselytes who might get baptized, that kind of thing. Again, to symbolically show this change of relationship. Yeah, and that change. If I know, there's yeah. some discussion on the, the proselyte baptism, right, and, right, and there's some debate there. But you know, if there was such a thing, you're talking about a Gentile who is going through a ritual washing and now is coming in as a as an Israelite, someone under the covenant. Right? That's right. So you've got a major conversion of that person's identity. And, and John the Baptist's baptism is not that, okay? Right. That's uh, right, cuz he's baptizing Jews. That's right. right. So it's so it's this is an eschatological preparation mm-hmm. For the arrival of the promise of God, whereas Christian baptism isn't anticipating anything, it's actually an act that declares the fulfillment of something. Sure, yeah, but but there is a connection, and especially mm-hmm. at the at the creedal language here, mm-hmm. where it says one baptism for the remission of sins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a lot of students that because for sure we don't confess that pouring water on somebody or dipping somebody is going to forgive their sins. It's right, not right. A, uh, one-to-one mechanical correspondence there. Uh, so they'll balk at that. they like, I like everything else in that creed except that line. <laughs> and we're like, well, that line is actually a Bible verse. It uh-huh. does come from the Bible's own description uh, of John's baptism, mm-hmm. the function of that, minus the of repentance. So right. John's baptism is described as he's went around preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Um, Baptism was associated very closely to repentance, and that was a turning away from a sinful lifestyle, like you said, in preparation for the eschatological kingdom, the coming kingdom. Mm -hmm. But you were at that time then aligning yourself with with that which was coming, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, it's very similar in that the Christian who is being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is turning away from this life of sin and this old identity. Right. As we mentioned with the with the making holy mm-hmm. and aligning themselves with the communi- community of the saints, the Messiah, and there is an eschatological uh, aspect to that as well. So there, you're right; it's not the same exact baptism, 
but there is a sense of we well, are turning connected. away and being disconnected from our life of sin right. and entering into a life of holiness, which is what it, I think that text means by um, the forgiveness of sins. It's a, it's a forgiveness in a sense of a um, you were a sinner, now you're a saint, and you're living a the life of the saint. And in the context of John, you're anticipating the mm-hmm. arrival of something, whereas in Christian baptism, you're acknowledging yeah. that it has come. Correct. And that you are... You are not identifying with it. You're you're participating in it. I mean, right. it's it's you're 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 a part of the story. Yeah, in, and, in many ways. And this is why Paul, I think, um, uses this language of new creation already. Anyone who is in Christ, new creation. I mean, this is right. eschatological language. Or born again, right now, born again. Yeah, same idea. It's it's new covenant, right. uh, New creation kind of language. So so exactly right. So so there's a connection between. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist in the Christian baptism, which is why I think – so is that text saying that anybody who gets drops of water out of them from this magic water baptism automatically has forgiveness? No, it's much more complicated than that, and it relates to this turning from uh, this lifestyle and this these beliefs and entering into this communion of the saints. Yeah, there's a passage – I'm going to see if I can get it up here um, – in First Peter, that I think is actually whenever we get into these conversations with people, you know, this is a passage that I'd uh, love to turn to because I think it's so um, clear what's going on here when we think about um, about baptism. It, it's First Peter three twenty one. Mm-hmm. It says, "And this prefigured baptism is looking the picture of being rescued out of the flood. Mm-hmm. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, and then I love this little side mark: yeah. not the washing of physical dirt, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God. What mm-hmm. makes what makes baptism significant is not the right." But the attitude that Correct. goes into the right. Yeah, and I love that translate. What translation is That's that? That's the net. Yeah, it's a great translation. There's yeah. different ways of translating that. Yeah, but it's saying baptism itself is a. It's this is pledge or vow language. You are um, committing to live a certain way. It's the baptism of repentance. And the idea is, and I think the imagery there is just as the floods washed away the sinful world and delivered, you know, Noah and his family in this new world to start over. Right. In our personal lives, baptism is doing the same thing. It is right. washing away our old life, and now we who are in Christ, all things have become new, and there's this this restarting of, of the life as a, a life of holiness. And, w- and without getting too technical or too denominational, that's why it's important that the person participating in the rite understand what's going on in the rite that they're participating. In, in, in our tradition, yeah, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, now, to be fair, you know those who would baptize an infant they always follow it up with catechesis and a confirmation. So, right. so there is this sense of they are aware of what they've been baptized into. Uh, we we should reverse that, I think, mm-hmm. in my tradition, and we uh, prepare for and then baptize. But, but yeah, yeah. So, so the point here is to get back to the point you're making is mm-hmm. it's not that this rite is a magical thing; it's actually representative of something far more profound that's already taken Correct. place. Correct. Yeah. Um, Can uh, let me let me yeah. just read a. a Great, a, a Basel of Caesarea from around the same time as the Council of Constantinople puts it this way, the relationship between faith and baptism. Mm-hmm. And I can't get through one of these without reading one of the church fathers. Okay, so. all right, okay. Very short. Faith is perfected through baptism, 
Baptism is established through faith, and both are completed by the same names. For as we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, so are we also baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. First comes the confession, introducing us to salvation, and baptism follows, setting the seal upon our ascent. I think that's a great way of putting the two together Mm -hmm. without conflating the two and saying baptism itself automatically saves apart from and the other thing that's going on here that we shouldn't miss is that in the midst of saying you know it's a one baptism for the remission of sins is to is to ask the question well what is the remission of sins for in other words what is it so if you come to romans 6 for example where the issue of baptism in the picture of washing appears also in paul the point that's being made there is that the water baptism itself actually pictures this transaction of what forgiveness of sins gets mm-hmm. you. And it doesn't just get you, how can I say this, pardon. Yeah, okay. get out of hell. That's right. right. Free. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, but it also cleanses you so that the Spirit can mm-hmm. come in and indwell you Correct. and you become a participant in, in the new covenant promise to which the Bible was always driving. Yeah. And so you are you are then, for the rest of your Christian life, living out your baptism. Mm-hmm. You are living in this communion of the saints, having been set apart through baptism. And baptism does that. I, I liken it to the uh, – it isn't nothing. Yes. Right? It, I liken it to a marriage ceremony. Right. Marriage doesn't um, put you in love with your spouse. Right. Or, or – um, generate in you this sort of commitment, it is an outward sign, but but we place a very strong emphasis on that sign and the vows that occur there and the and, and we don't ask someone, are you committed to your spouse? Do you love your spouse? We ask, are you married? Have yeah. you been through the, the, the ceremony? So we have to be careful that we don't uh, end up in one of two extremes, separating our faith and our confession, our conviction from the water baptism mm-hmm. so much that we neglect baptism. Uh-huh. But we also have to make sure we don't conflate the two and collapse the two and think all you need to do is be baptized and you're fine. And if you Those remember, and if you, and if you remember what it is, the sign of yeah. uh, that, and also what forgiveness of sins is about. You know, I. I I say to students regularly, I said, you've got to ask the question what forgiveness of sins is for. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't just You're saved unto something. That's right? Exactly yeah. right. And and God is taking you somewhere in that journey. Mm-hmm. He, it's not just to, you know, you're not just checking a box. Yeah. You're actually entering into a relationship in which God is providing the capability and the enablement for that relationship. Yeah, and, you know, and even the word, the Greek word for forgiveness, a release from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're released from the guilt of sin, but I think whether it may be a my doing a play on the words, maybe uh-huh. there is something essentially contained in that, but it also is a a release from the lifestyle of sin, we say. You right. Know, you are entering, you are being released from the guilt and the power of the sin and the power of the devil and the darkness and the destruction that goes with that. And when you, through baptism, enter into this new covenant community, you are now in a community of life and light and sanctification and the body working together to and encourage you to li- Luke, a life of good works. And Luke 4 pictures yeah. it as a liberation. It I is. Mean, it's it's exactly a release. It it's, it's captives being released. Correct. It's chains coming off. So, so I think we need a, a fuller understanding right. of what baptism and, and forgiveness really means. Right. And so – Right uh, in that light that – we should all be on board with that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and, and I and I think the other thing that it shows is is that um, if I can say it this way, Christianity and the and the gospel is about it's not just about the cross; it's about where the cross takes us. Mm-hmm. If I can say, I like to think about the cross as a hub mm-hmm. out of which the gospel 
emerges. Yeah. And, and, and so when Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation, he's talking about the capability mm-hmm. that comes out of this work that Jesus has done. Exactly. And, and this is why baptism – we don't leave people under the water. Right. It's a baptism of, <laughs> exactly. uh, associated with the death as well as the resurrection. Exactly. We need to emphasize that Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead, and we are following him, him in that, in our faith and into the new that, life. Into the new life. Exactly. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I actually visualize this for people when I teach and preach on it. I say, now imagine, and I'm going to be Baptist for a second. I'm immersing you, and we only deal with forgiveness of sins, and we don't deal with the new life on the other end. Yeah. Look at the picture. Yeah. You go into the water. And, and you stay, stay in there. The water. Yeah. And since you're not a fish, okay, that's not going to work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, uh, so that's the picture. So, so and which also explains, although we're not going to develop this now, it's, we're going to do that in a separate podcast. Um, explains why the resurrection is on the other end of the mention of the baptism right. in the creed, because right. mm-hmm. it's a natural sequence that we're talking about, exactly. and the and the life to come. Well, this has been uh, a pretty uh, interesting journey, I think, yeah. through a very. A small portion of the creed almost gets treated like an addendum to right, the creed yeah. when people but think it's very about dense, it. Very dense. It is. Important. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, and there's a a lot to contemplate uh, uh, as we think about our membership of a, uh, to a much larger community, not just uh, nationally or denominationally, mm-hmm. but literally across time. Yeah. And, and the entirety of what the church is. Yeah, this and it should challenge how seriously we take our personal commitment um, to our local church and our mm-hmm. ministry there. A, a, as well as to people who belong to other churches and other Realize communities. In the, involved in something bigger than ourselves. It's transnational. Yeah. Uh, and then, and of course, the other side of it is thinking through the baptism side of it, which is this picture of this wonderful cleansing that we've experienced once for all that also allows the Spirit uh, to indwell us, sets us apart, so that we're able to serve God uh, with our lives and in context of our well-being. It sets well, us on that trajectory of a life of discipleship. Exactly right. So, well, Michael, I appreciate you coming in and helping us uh, negotiate our way through this portion of the creed. and a little bit of the history. It's a fascinating journey, and we hope you're enjoying this walk through the Nicene Creed and that you'll join us again soon on the table. We thank you for being a part of our broadcast. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.